Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and his licentiate and doctorate degrees in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1977, he became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement in 2015, just last year. He's a well-known author and a convert uh, to the Catholic Church. He has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism and has just published a new book on modernism published by, um, by CUA Press, Catholic University Press, an anti-modernist anthology. So that is now on our video library for uh, the world to see. So make sure you get on Catholic University Press and get that book. He's uh, presented regularly at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we're delighted to, to welcome him back. Dr. Marshner, come on up. Thank you very much, Father Hezekiah. It's going to take a while to get used to that moniker. It's a good one. Hezekiah, by the way, was king of Israel when the battle happened, about which Lord Byron wrote that favorite, famous poem. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. His cohorts were covered in purple and gold. Anybody know the rest? Yes. You're going to love it. Great poem, great king, great priest. Yes. All right. My little handout begins with the topic on, really, terms for eternal life. It's our complete happiness, fulfillment, blessedness, last end, or ultimate purpose. Let me take a minute to just straighten these terms out. Usually, a treatise on the vision of God, heaven, the afterlife, is called a treatise on happiness. I do not like that translation, translation because the word happiness has changed its meaning in modern times. The word now means a subjective satisfaction with your state. Okay. You're happy, you're, you're subjectively satisfied, you're content, I'm happy. And the trouble is, that you can be subjectively content with your state when you shouldn't be. I always think of the example of my old buddy Agamemnon. Came home from the Trojan War, all covered in grime and 
dust and so on, and gets into the shower. <laughs> and he's there in the shower, the bathtub, whatever. He's happy as a clam and all good hot water and clean soap and whatnot. And little does he know that he has no right to be happy because there's a guy creeping up on him with a knife. His um, somewhat estranged wife has arranged his assassination in the bathtub. So Agamemnon is sitting there happy as a pig and about to die. Happiness is not a good word for what we want. Another word is fulfillment. All right. Fulfillment adds to happiness the idea of genuine well-being. Okay? Genuine well-being. When you're fulfilled, you're well off and you know it. So it has an objective side. You're genuinely well off. Also a subjective side. You know it and you're rejoicing in it. That's what it means to be fulfilled. And that is what the ancient Latin word beatitudo meant, which St. Thomas usually uses in his Latin. And it is what Aristotle talked about when he talked about happiness. Eldaimonia. So, okay, fulfillment is a much better choice. We all will fulfillment. We all want to be well off and aware of being well off. It's a universal human desire. And when we talk theologically, we call that state blessedness. The blessed in heaven are those who are supernaturally well off in the next life. All right. Now, the theologians long ago resolved to call our attitude towards total fulfillment uh, an attitude towards our last end. Okay? And they did not mean by that what it means today in English. Okay? It meant ultimate purpose. And this brings me to a point which is very important. Your ultimate purpose is what you are most of all ambitious to achieve. Okay? People think of heaven, well, you know, I'm going to end up there. There's not much of my doing. I'm up to God, you know. As if heaven were some kind of bowl of cherries and God was going to toss you in. You have to will it. You have to want it. You have to pursue it. You have to be ambitious for it. You have to long for it or you're never going to see it, okay? That's what an ultimate purpose means. Now, the talk of an ultimate purpose, of course, is ambiguous. It could mean the last arrangement that God has made for you, as though it's not your purpose, but his. And in our case, eternal life is also the ultimate arrangement God has made for us, but it also means our ambition, what we are out to achieve. Well, here's where things get interesting. Everybody wants to be fulfilled, 
happy, aware of being well off, and all that kind of, as long as we speak in vague, glittering generalities, everybody wants it. Where the problem comes is when you change the question to where are you going to find it? Where are you going to find this fulfillment? I know what it is. It's being all around well off and contented with that. And so, but where are you going to find such a state? And this is where people give popular answers which are conspicuously wrong. Some people think they're going to find it in fame. Some people think they're going to find it in money. Some think they're going to find it in pleasures of the flesh. Some think they're going to find it in power, political power. Yes. All those answers are wrong. And if you want to know what's wrong with them, you can read in the first part of the second part of the Summa. First part of the second part. Question two. Wherein happiness is found. Okay. The Latin word there is misleading. In Latin it says, in quo beatitudo consistit, as though he was talking about where happiness, what happiness consists of. That's not what it means. It means where you're going to find it. Okay. Where does happiness lie? Where are you going to find it? You're not going to find it in money because of the, we know the enormous number of very unhappy, wealthy people. You're not going to find it in pleasure. You're not going to find it in the bottom of a bottle. I was subject to that illusion for many years, I must say. Hello, Miss. <laughs> but you can't find it there. You all know that. So one of the problems that people have is they don't think well enough about what they really want to achieve because they don't think carefully enough about all the goods to which they're naturally attracted. Okay. When you have everything you naturally desire, you're satisfied. What all do I naturally desire? Well, all right, yeah, I want food, I want clothing, I want pleasures, but that's not all. People forget that they also want friendship, for example. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be abandoned. They want friendship. But wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't have friendship if you treat everybody like dirt. And there it comes. Aha! People want some discipline in their lives, some virtues. Naturally, there some virtues are popular, like self-control, popular. Sobriety is popular in some circles. <laughs> Self-control is very popular. People naturally want that. When you think about all the things you want naturally, you get a broader picture of what it would take to make you really satisfied. And people also forget that among the things they naturally desire is to know the truth. You know this in your own life. You want to know the score. You want to know where the bodies are buried. You want to know what's behind some activity or other. 
You want to know the motives. And you want to know what really satisfies. So you want to know the truth. Now, an ability to know the truth is called an intellectual virtue. Okay? Again, the word virtue has undergone a good deal of uh, deterioration in modern times. Nobody talks anymore about intellectual virtues. Don't even know there are such things. People think all the virtues are moral virtues. Not true. Many virtues have to do with um, the intellect. Okay? Including having a serious mind. How would you feel if you were well off financially, well off in your health physically, well supplied with friends and parties and whatever, but intellectually you were such a lightweight you had really never bothered to try to understand anything. Oh, oh, it's for eggheads. I'm going to go There's no great payoff in being stupid. Even the mafia knows you can die from lack of information. <laughs> right? So if you take a broad enough palette of what all we naturally desire, you begin to see the outlines of what total human fulfillment would have to be. Now then, St. Thomas takes you through an elimination where you're not going to find it, not going to find it in money, not going to find it in power, not going to find it. So where does he end up? You're going to find it, he says, in the vision of God. Okay? In the vision of God. You're going to find it in an experience that at once bestows definitive knowledge and bestows priceless friendship. Okay? My human friends are nice, but my uncreated friends are even nicer. Yes, I want to know them intimately as I am known. Friendship is going to be delivered to you into beatific vision. What else? Pleasure. It's going to be delightful seeing God. Delightful. And not just delightful in the way that, uh, oh, yeah, you figured out how Euclid proved that theorem. That's <laughs> sort of delightful, yeah. But this is the kind of delight you get from the deep disclosure of a friend of yours who's never opened up to you before and has a whole side of his life that's new to you. That's marvelous. And depending on what this friend reveals to you, his revelation can be life-changing. It can rectify the will. I don't want to be such a slug anymore. I, this guy's inspiring. You know what I mean? You want a steady grip on the virtues? You want friendship that can't go sour? You want knowledge that can't turn out to be shallow or false? 
then you want the vision of God. Because that delivers all of these things. Now, St. Thomas says, and he's with all the followers of the church, like Augustine and others on this point, the vision of God, which means the seeing of God, is the heart and core of human fulfillment, meaning seeing God not just uh, in uh, metaphysical concepts, that's not much seeing, it's not seeing God just in his effects, you can do that any night, look up at the stars, but seeing God in his essence is how St. Thomas puts it. Now then, I'm not going to get into a big fight in the history of theology over whether what we get to see in God in our ultimate fulfillment is really his essence or not. We're going to fight about that some other time when I feel like kicking St. Gregory Palamas around. And I'm not usually happy kicking saints. So we'll just let that go for a while. What did he mean by see God through his essence or in his essence? Okay, what did he mean by the essence of a thing? There have been no end of dull, bookish philosophers writing books about essence. Got that awful German Husserl, das Wesen of this and the essence of that. Oh, geez, give me a break. The essence of something is very simple. It's that which goes into a genuine, deep, and real definition of it. Okay? It's not the meaning of a word you get in a dictionary. Think of the word water. What are you going to find in a dictionary if you look up the word water? Well, 300 years ago, you would have found uh, clear stuff to wash your face with. Liquid used for cleansing and agriculture. Today, we know what the essence of water is because we can state its scientific definition. It's H2O. Nothing mysterious about that. Nothing Teutonically boring about that. Would you like to know iron through its essence? Huh? It's easy. Get a hold of the periodic table and look up its atomic weight and that will give you its place among the elements and you will know exactly what iron is and from that essence, that atomic weight, that scientific definition, you can deduce the other important properties of iron. It's going to be a metal, it's going to be heavy, okay? It's going to withstand high temperatures, blows and so on and so on. Okay, can you see God in his essence, in what he really is? Can you get to the heart of what God really is? I'm going to let that question hang for a minute and turn to another one. In addition to the vision, which is the core of total fulfillment, a 
Aquinas also talks about the peripheries of fulfillment. What are the peripheries? On the one hand, there's the preparations for it. Preparation for it. Is a grace-filled life on earth? Okay. Uh, for most of us, it's going to include purgatory. And then it's going to require receiving the light of glory, as it's called. The light of glory. Some people call it Tabor light. Whatever you're going to call it. I don't care. But you need these preparations that bring you to the vision. And on the other end of the periphery, you get the consequences that flow from the vision of God. Suppose you had been wondering for years about some deep problem. And every time you tried to figure it out, you, just, you got lost and your thoughts went crooked and you just couldn't get to the bottom of it. And one day it finally dawned on you. It, it all fit together and you finally saw the answer you would be delighted, wouldn't you? You had been after this bit of truth for years, now you have it. That's what the will does with a good that's in hand. If it ain't in hand, your will desires it. When it is in hand, your will delights in it. So delight is a natural consequence of the beatific vision. Delight in the will. So happiness, delight, the moving of the will is a part of it. Outside of your soul, your intellect where you get the vision, your will where you rejoice in it, there are further overflow benefits. The resurrection. Okay. When we enter into the resurrection, thanks to the leadership of Christ our God, your soul, filled with the glory of the vision, the light of glory and the vision, is going to change your mortal body, glorifying it. I'm going to talk a lot about that next week. I'm not going to get into it now. But your body is going to be glorified with the glory of your soul. Okay. We've always known in philosophy that the soul is something like the form of the body. It's that which determines you to be a human being. If you didn't have a human soul, you wouldn't be a human being at all. It's that which makes you a human being. All right? And every part of your flesh, a human part of the flesh. Yes, that's what the soul does for your flesh. But in this life, that's all it does. But in the next life, when the soul itself is strengthened with the light of glory and the vision of God, the soul is going to have this spillover effect in your body. And you are going to shine with the brightness of the sun. You're going to be glorified. Okay. Do the overflow effects of the beatific vision stop with the resurrection? Nope. Nope, 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 nope. That's only the beginning again. Because beyond the resurrection itself, there is the life of the world to come. 
God is going to give us a new heavens, a new earth. I can't begin to describe what the physics of that are going to be. Um, if St. Thomas is right, the physics is going to have to be very strange. Because the heavenly bodies are going to stop moving. That's how he interpreted the Bible saying time shall be no more. Okay? What if the heavenly moves? The sun doesn't move. The moon doesn't move. The stars don't move. Nothing moves. No way to tell time. Goodbye time. Yes. Oh, uh, if nothing moves, uh, <laughs> things are going to be tough when gravity pulls them all into one big lump, aren't they? Hello, great final crunch. Not nice. So our physics is going to have to be different when the universe in turn is glorified by God. Change and deterioration are going to be wiped out. I'm now on point B of my outline. What does seeing God in his essence mean? I told you. It means seeing him through what would be a true definition of him if you had one. But it's a knowledge by which you get to the very bottom of what God is. And here's a paradox for you. Part of getting to the bottom of what God is, is realizing that it has no bottom. God is infinite, inexhaustible. There is no depth to which you can go and say, I've now gotten to the bottom of God. <laughs> Sorry. Can't be done. So his definition is not one that we can grasp in language, but it's a way of knowing what he is that gives us a true insight into him better than anything we can obtain in this life. Now, I have a question for you. I know that seeing God in his essence, if that's what the faith promises us, is possible. If the faith says it's going to happen, it's darn well possible. But I'm asking you a slightly different question. Is it a plausible possibility? Can you believe that even before the resurrection, we get to heaven, and afterwards, on the new heavens and the new earth, are we going to be so elevated in our minds, so strengthened in our understanding, that we can really see God for what he is? Is that possible? Well, I can't answer that question, other than in terms of the faith, but I can give you a reason to think that this hope is plausible. Okay? Something very peculiar about the human race, okay, that is regularly overlooked by empiricists, Kantians, positivists, and other inferior breeds. <laughs> it is the point that people can formulate with cognitive understanding questions they can't answer. Mm -hmm. We can all do that. We can formulate, and understand what we mean by the formulation, questions we can't answer. 
And better than that, we can desire answers we can't get. In other words, I can have a natural desire for a level of knowledge that's beyond my ability. Okay? Not hard to understand that. A native in the Pacific Islands looks up at the sky, sees the stars, wonders about the great maker of all this. He understands his question. He's asked a question which he can't answer. Not without the revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who created the world. He can't he understand the question all right. And that's why he can welcome the gospel when it comes to him. At last there's an answer. You can understand questions you can't answer and desire answers you can't get. No other animal is that way. We are biologically weird. It's like we're biologically wired to desire what goes beyond our nature. Okay? And can only be supplied by God's nature. I turn now to to a letter C on my outline. This is going to be about the how of the vision. The how of the vision. How's it going to happen? How's it going to be? And I'm going to ask you something. Will the vision of God happen through a really deep concept? In other words, you get such a great deep concept of God that now you understand him. Is that how it's going to be? No. It cannot be that way. A concept is a mental formation. It's a likeness which you form in your mind that allows you to think of something, understand what you mean by a word, and so on. And God cannot be represented in any likeness that we can form. The saints in heaven will see the beatific vision, but they won't be able to form a concept of it. This is not, I mean, our, our salvation is not rationalism 301. Get up there and get the really deep, con- no, 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 no. You want deep concepts? Get them here. In heaven, you're beyond that. You're seeing something so great you cannot conceive. Okay? It's beyond the possibility of being represented in a concept. Well, now, wait a minute. All right, all right, let's forget about really deep concepts. Will it ha- are we going to see God with the eyes of our body? What do you think? No? Cannot see God with the eyes of your body. The eyes of your body can only show you material things, visible things. Now, God can take visible form for certain special purposes, he can appear to, um, uh, to Jacob, uh, one form or another. But he doesn't naturally have any such form. And the beatific vision is not going to be a divine disguise. He's not going to put on some visibility cloak so we can see him for a while. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He's not going to do that. So we're not going to see him with our bodily eyes. 
oh yeah, but wait a minute, what about, what about, what about the glorified eyes we're going to get in the resurrection? Can we see him with those? And the answer is no. Whether in our, our natural form or in the resurrected form, the eye is limited to visible things. It has to be simulated by light bouncing off of surfaces. However, Aquinas learned from St. Augustine, there's going to be something about God which is a lot more, which will be a lot more visible in the resurrection than it is now. Okay? You will be able to see God's influence in people. You will be able to see their godliness. They're, they're being tuned into God. You'll be able to see that. Just as, in a funny way, you can see that somebody's alive. This is St. Augustine's example. Life is inherently invisible. I mean, it's not a visible thing, is it? It's not like your hair. It's invisible. Life is invisible. But you don't need to believe that people are alive. You can see it. Yes. In how they act, in what they do. Augustine says, and Aquinas repeats, in the same way, in the resurrection, we are going to be able to see God at work in each other. Doesn't that sound great? It's beautiful. Will the vision of God happen through any faculty natural to us? And the answer, of course, is no. Man's faculties are tuned to finite, created objects. Our faculties are not going to be able to see the uncreated God. Well, what about, what about created light, at least? And here Aquinas says, okay. There is such a thing as the light of glory, as it's called in the West, the lumen gloriae, which, despite its metaphorical name, is a strengthening of the mind. It's a boost of your intelligence that will enable you to receive the input of God. God himself comes down and unites himself to you. As a concept gets into your mind and enlightens you once it's there, so also God, not through a created concept, but through his very substance, will get into your mind and you will grasp and see because your mind has been elevated, strengthened, boosted by this light of glory. Well, now, wait a minute. So, w w beyond grace in this life, we have to have, after death, the blessing of this blessed light, this light of glory. As the scripture says, by your light we shall see light. In your light we shall see light. Is that Psalm 35? And so, so we need this created light beyond this life. All right. So now, let's make a really optimistic assumption. That every one of us in this room is going to get to heaven. Okay? So we're all there. And we're all seeing the same thing. 
And we're all seeing the same thing in the same way. We're all seeing God through his essence. Yes. Does that mean we all see equally? Sounds like it. But the answer is no. Why not? Some people will see him better. Why is that? Well, St. Thomas has a deep discussion of this. Some people are going to get more of that gift of the created supernatural light than other people. Why are they going to have more light? Because they loved God more deeply. Love is the best motive there is for wanting to get to know somebody. Yes. Finally, Aquinas' emphasis on knowing makes sense. Getting to know God is like getting to know somebody. You can't know somebody deeply without loving him or her. Okay. Love will take you deeper into the other person. If you can take or leave the other person, you're not going to get to know them very deeply. But if your love is hot and sincere and long-lasting, you will get to see God deeply. You will have more of that blessed light that lets you grasp him. Yes? Um... And it's a very humbling thought. Okay. I have been around um, in college work for 40 years or something like that. And I get this reputation as a kind of an authority lecturer. Yeah. Smart guy. Man with the answers. And when I get to heaven... If I get there, I think I'm going to be one of the biggest dopes there. St. John Vianney. You know who that was? The famous confessor who couldn't get his seminary studies through his head? He almost didn't get ordained. He was so dumb, pardon me. But did he love God? Oh. In heaven, he's going to be the genius and I'm going to be the dunce. Does everybody see? Yes. Makes a big difference. Now I have another question for you. Will anybody in heaven comprehend God? Okay. Now for the Latins, this is a special question. For the Greeks, it was not. And this is part of the reason why there's a difference between the theology in the East and the theology in the West on this question of whether we can see God as he really is. When you ask the comprehend question, all of a sudden the Latins answer no. Aquinas says no. Wait a minute! Aqu are you, you jerking me around here? I'm going to see God for what he really is and get to his essence. And I don't comprehend. You don't. What do you mean by comprehend? Okay. To comprehend a thing is to know every aspect of it in which it's knowable at all and to know every one of those aspects optimally. 
Okay? Now, I'm going to take you through a little bit of exercise that will help you to understand this. It's, it's simpler than theology, I assure you. Does everybody here know arithmetic? Yeah. Count, add, subtract, multiply, even divide, some of us. Yes. We know some arithmetic, don't we? Do you realize that by what you know of arithmetic, you already know an infinite thing? But you don't comprehend it. What do you mean? Okay, all arithmetic can be reduced to a handful of axioms. Just as that genius Euclid reduced all of geometry to a handful of axioms, there was an Italian who did the same thing. 2,500 years later, why isn't he as famous as Euclid? It's racism, I tell you. <laughs> anyway, his name was Piano, P-E-A-N-O. You remember that, P-E-A-N-O, I forget his first name. Great man. Reduced all of arithmetic, all of basic arithmetic, to a little group of four or five axioms. Okay? And out of those four or five axioms, you can deduce an infinite number of truths about what happens when two numbers are added, subtracted, multiplied, or divided. By grasping that handful of axioms, you know arithmetic. Do you comprehend it? Do you know every addition as well as it can be known? No. I haven't even thought of most addition problems. You give me two uh, four-digit numbers and ask, what's the sum? And I, oh, yeah, oh, oh. I get slow about this. Yeah? Division, forget it. Here's another example. From five simple axioms, all the truths of elementary logic can be deduced. Okay? I learned those axioms years ago. From them, a literally infinite number of theorems can be deduced. So do I know an infinite system? Yes, I do. Do I comprehend it? No, because I don't know every proof. I don't, even, I don't even know all the formulae that can be formulated in the language of formal logic. So I don't know it as well as it's there to be known. But I apprehend it. That's the key distinction I'm trying to get. The difference between apprehending and comprehending. In the Beatrix vision, we're going to apprehend God as he really is. Apprehend. Comprehend, no. Apprehend, yes. Comprehend, no. You all apprehended arithmetic. You just admitted it. But nobody comprehends it if you mean no every math problem to the last ounce. All right. So will anybody in heaven comprehend God? No. No finite mind can know him as well as he is there to be known. All right, now I want to say something about a last and very interesting topic. It's about the extent of the vision. What all am I going to see in seeing God? 
Now, God contains in himself the, uh, the, the eternal ideas, the plans of all possible things. Am I going to see all that? God contains in himself the power to cause everything he's caused. If you knew God as a cause perfectly, you'd, you'd see in him the prefigurement of, of his effects. So what all am I going to see when I see God? How much am I going to learn about myself? How much am I going to learn about my family? How much am I going to learn about my neighbors? How much am I going to learn about my enemies? Now then, aren't those interesting questions? Yeah. Well, St. Thomas's answer is going to come as a rather crushing disappointment. He says that except insofar as it concerns your own interior life, you're not going to learn any of those things. Because they don't, get this, they don't pertain to the perfection of human knowing. Okay. So, wait a minute. Not knowing my neighbors? Oh. How, how deeply do you want to know them? Reading their minds? No, that doesn't pertain to the, to the perfection of human knowing. What, what does? And here, St. Thomas's answer sounds like the answer of an Aristotelian schoolboy. You're going to get to know the genus and species of everything. All the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, all the creeping things of the earth, genus and species, all of it. The fish of the sea. You're a walking ichthyology expert. Not theology, ichthyology, never mind. You're going to be an expert on the true definitions, the kind of stuff that we would know if we could complete the theoretical sciences. What if biology shut down someday and said we've learned everything there is to know about living things? We've gotten to the bottom of the genome and the DNA and we've yeah, we got it all now. You're going to know that in the vision. Yes. Would you like to know which version of physics is true? How about, are there any fans of um, string theory here tonight? I'm not a fan. Maybe you are. But there, right now there's a huge battle among the physicists between the followers of string theory and the guys who think it's baloney. And nobody knows who's right. Well, I, I tell my physicist friends, don't despair. Yes, there are 500 million versions of string theory, but you will know which one is right. Well, what if we can't test it with experiments? We, we can't. Never mind. Never mind building the micrometers and the time. You're going to know. Say your prayers, physical friend. <laughs> Say your prayers and you will know. You want to know all about what happened on the six days of creation? You'll know. All that scientific stuff, you will know. It's sounding a little better, isn't it? But the personal motivations 
and particular actions of individuals do not pertain to the perfection of human knowing. So I'm sorry. Gossip fans, you're not going to learn what all you want to know. What was she really thinking of me when she said that? <laughs> the beatific vision is not going to tell you. When I proposed to her and she said no, what was she really thinking? You're not going to find out. Not in the vision. All right? But I don't want to close down on a sour note. Next week, I'm going to get into the overflow consequences of the vision. We'll get into the resurrection, yes, the life of the resurrection, the kind of body you come back with, the kind of body those scumbags in hell come back with. It's going to be fun, <laughs> but don't despair. There are things you're going to know, going to learn about your neighbors, your enemies, your spouse, not from the beatific vision, but from the general judgment. Aha! Uh -huh. They're all going to be there in one huge crowd, and you're going to hear from everybody. Truth will be revealed. The books will be opened. Oh, yeah, that general judgment is going to be terrific. Of course, all of your nasty secrets are going to be revealed, too. All my little secrets are going to be revealed. Everything comes out in the wash in the general judgment. So for those of you, you're not so much into science, but you're really into other people and gossip and what do they really think? Stick around for the general judgment. <laughs> but um, please, when you get there, don't be on the side of the goats. You know what I mean? You might find your situation <laughs> too disappointing to be consoled even by gossip. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. <laughs> Questions, yes. This is a very simple, I know it's a very basic question. You said the soul is the form of the body. What is that definition of form again, or is that another lecture. Okay. Form is the same thing as a specifier. Okay. Here you've got biological matter. What specifies that matter to be a human body? Answer, it's form. The form of that in man is the rational soul. What would, what would take a bunch of biological matter and specify it to be the body of a dog? Answer, the animal form, canineinity, canine form. Likewise, felineinity, bovinity. I found that word in Latin, <laughs> bovitas. That what it takes to specify a cow. Bovitas. <laughs> Just thought you'd like to know that. Is that your definition of form, Dr. Martin? 
There you go, 30 seconds or less on what form is. Beautiful. Can you learn anything new in heaven like, I have a desire to play the piano now, but I can't. Can I learn that in heaven? I don't. <laughs> okay, I don't see a reason why not. Okay. Certainly, the ability to compose and play music is natural to man, and uh, the cultivation of that talent should be a part of the perfection of human knowing. So, I don't see why you couldn't pick up that information in heaven. I mean, after all, you're going to have plenty of time. <laughs> and God includes somehow in his own mysterious being all the glorious melodies there have ever been. So, yeah, why not? Yes. Not that Aquinas ever discusses it. He never says anything about music, confound him. What? Well, I got a follow-up question for you coming online. From, yes. a, from a very nice young man, uh, Eric Ortiz, who's asking, after the aforementioned Gloria Lumen, will our intellects be elevated to comprehend the beatific vision? Uh, uh, sorry, when our intellects will be elevated to comprehend the beatific vision, will our intellect continue to develop? So here he's asking something more, maybe a more elevated question here. Okay. What the light of glory does is give us the ability to apprehend the divine nature, not comprehend. That is forever beyond any creature. Okay? So don't, don't feel bad about it. St. Michael the Archangel is no better off than you are in that regard. You're never going to comprehend the divine essence. But apprehend, yes. And from there, will you go on to learn things? Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's like this. Imagine that the beatific vision is the Encyclopedia Britannica. Except it's being shown to you so fast, you see the whole book at once. Okay. All you got to do is slow down. Focus on a paragraph somewhere and you'll learn things. They're all there in God to be known. Your finite mind can't take it all in at once. But we've got plenty of time. Is there a book that you could recommend on what to expect in the eternal life? The Bible. Um, my um, thoughts tonight were taken from the first part of the second part of the Summa. Prima Secunde, question three, and also in the first part of the Summa, question 12. All, one ST, uh, first part of the Summa, Prima Pars, question 12 is all about uh, how God gets to be known, not naturally, then supernaturally and in the vision, uh, and so on. And there are many, many detailed discussions that I didn't take you into. 
because I thought that your patience to hear about six medieval kinds of concept would be limited. And I believe the Summa is available on newadvent.org. I'm yeah. sure other places also, but newadvent.org. Yeah, but if it's that old Dominican... It is. Don't it is. buy it. Yeah, but don't go, don't even look at it. <laughs> you want my trans... Never mind. <laughs> it was better than the Latin you had made us read in class, Dr. Marshner. Uh, you had stated, or you asked the question, will anybody in heaven comprehend God? Mm -hmm. And you said the Latins would immediately say no. Right. But you didn't uh, say anything about how the Eastern right perceives The Eastern would say the same. They say no. But they don't draw the distinction between apprehending and comprehending. So they say you don't get to know God by his essence at all. That's why the closest you can get to the beatific vision in Byzantine theology is to enjoy this uncreated light. Okay, that's supposed to be the best revelation you can get. And you will see something about the divine persons, but you will never see God's essence. Okay. So their theology is more restrictive than ours as to the possibility of seeing God as he really is. So if we stop and pause and uh, focus in heaven, will our, will our um, love for God develop? Sure. So we'll grow to, to love God more and more. Sure. But how do we do that? When there's no time. And, there's, and, and there's, there's no bottom to how deeply you're going to love him. And no top to how high you're going to estimate him. Everything you see in God will just make you more amazed, more delighted, more blessed, and so on. Um, I had a crazy comparison that went through my mind earlier this evening. I must have been missing my cocktails or something, but um, have you ever read the kind of prose that's turned out by professional wine tasters? Oh, the, the finish, the smooth on the palate. I can't read that stuff. I can't figure out what they're talking about. Now, suppose you had tried for a long time to get through that stuff, and somebody said, heck with that stuff. Here's a bottle. Taste. You'd love it. You'd be immensely relieved to get to the real thing. <laughs> is that it? Can you speak to that last point about, uh, that she mentioned about how is that possible if there's no time? Oh. Okay. What seems to shut down, in St. Thomas's opinion, is what we may call cosmic time. Okay? The processes of changes uh, that time in our physics is a measure of. But that doesn't take away psychological time. Okay? You progress in your mind from one thought to another because human reasoning is discursive. Human attention is delivered in limited spans. 
And so you go from one thought to another. And that will remain. Would have to remain in any finite mind. So not to worry about internal or psychological time. It'll be there. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.